Good morning. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8. Pastor preaches whole chapters in a sermon. I could barely get through a verse. So we'll be in verse 8 this morning of 1 Peter chapter 3. Give you a moment to find that. First Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In my family, I am the chocolate chip cookie maker. So I grew up doing that. As a kid, I made chocolate chip cookies all the time. And in our family, I'm the, the, the guy. I'm not sure in our married life if my wife has ever made chocolate chip. Have you ever made chocolate chip cookies? You think you have. Yeah. So I don't make them very often anymore. Maybe twice a year when I would just get a hankering. Uh, but when the kids were growing up, we made chocolate chip cookies a lot. Um, and we'd often make double batches because, you know, the first batch ends up being eaten as batter. And you have to have something left to throw in the oven. So um, that's just how we And, and I, I made cookies so often that I, I'm, I know the ingredients. Uh, two and a half cups of flour, two eggs, two sticks of butter, three quarters of a cup of sugar, three quarters of a cup of brown sugar, a uh, teaspoon of baking soda, teaspoon of vanilla, quarter or a half a teaspoon of salt, depending on your taste, and then a whole boatload of chocolate chips. That, I think that's it. Some of you are going, yes. Some of you are thinking, no, you need nuts. No, you don't need nuts. Some of you like nuts. Anyway, those ingredients are all necessary. You gotta have chocolate chips and chocolate chip cookies. You have to have the appropriate amount of flour. A little less flour and they're real thin. Too much flour and they're real thick and cakey. You have to have the right amount of flour. You have to have baking soda. A little bit of baking soda makes a big difference. You have vanilla, you have to have, you have, to have some salt. It's all, all those ingredients are necessary. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through, seven, through chapter 3, verse 7, so 2.13 to 3.7, Peter describes for us the essential ingredients of certain relationships. In 2.13 through 17, Peter tells us how we should relate to governmental authorities. Here's the ingredients to the proper relationship with government. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, Peter uh, tells slaves, employees, uh, what their, what's essential in their relationship with their masters, their employers. In three, 1 through 6, Peter tells wives what's essential in their relationship with their husbands. In chapter 3, verse 7, tells husband what's, husbands what's essential in their relationship with their wives. And now in verse 8, Peter's addressing us believers, plural, in regard to our relationships with other believers in the church. I say that because of the, the phrase, which is actually one Greek word, brotherly love, in verse 8. Obviously, you can't be speaking of the believer's relationship to unbelievers. So he's speaking here in verse 8 of our relationship with other believers in the church. And I say that because I look back at verse 1. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing individual churches in those areas, in those cities. So writing individual churches in those cities, here now he's addressing all of us. And note, um, verse 8, finally, all of you. He's now leaving these, this conversation or, or what he's been saying about individual believers and their relationship with uh, in their individual lives, husbands, wives, and so forth. Now he's talking to all of us in relationship to, our, in relationship to how we connect with and relate to other believers in the church. The word finally there, verse 8, he's pulling it all to a conclusion. It's his way of finishing the instruction he began in chapter 2, verse 13. So, Peter is closing off this section of instructions by instructing us how we should relate to one another in the church. How do we, as God's people, in this building, in this room, how should we be relating to one another? Now, as you look at the sermon outline in your bulletin, if you're doing that, you'll note that it is nothing more than a list. I'm mimicking Peter. That's what Peter gives us in verse 8. He just gives us a list. Apparently, Peter wants to make these virtues so easy to grasp and so uh, memorable that he simply lists them the way we list a laundry list or an ingredients list. What do you need for cookies, cupcake? I need, I don't need cupcakes. I need flour, I need uh, uh, chocolate chips, and I need, you know, the list. He does that in verse 8. He just gives us a list. Verse 8 is a recipe for God-honoring, for God-honoring relationships in the church. These five virtues are essential for our church and for every church. So we're going to pray and look at Peter's list of the essential ingredients of every Christian relationship within the church. These ingredients, these virtues, are essential for us as we relate to one another. Thank you, Father, for this text. There's, there's so much here for us. We are a church family. We're not connected by blood, biology. We're connected by a common parentage. We're connected by the fact that we've been born again into your family. And as children in this family, in this local expression of the larger family, we have been each given certain responsibilities regarding how we relate to one another. It's not that we can do what we want in the church. You've commanded us in this text and others just like it to minister and care for and love and relate to other believers in very specific ways. Use this, Father, use this short text to really challenge us to examine how we care for one another, to ask the question, am I involved in the lives of others? Am I caring for others in this family? Am I a real conscientious serving part in this family? Use this text to encourage us and Strengthen us in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So five virtues. First virtue, harmony and unity.
He says, have unity of mind. This is actually one Greek word that here means to be like-minded regarding the things of the Lord. It refers to uh, harmonious thinking regarding both doctrine and Christian living. This same thought is repeated over and over in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, he gives a whole list of things that should be found in the church. And many of them are listed here in verse 8. I'll, I'll read verses 10 through 16. Be devoted to one another. So again, he's talking to the church here. One another. When you see the phrase one another, it's a Greek word, all alone. It's always referring to the church. Be devoted to each other, to one another, in brotherly love. A theme that Peter picks up on. Honor one another uh, above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And you'll see this repeated in 1 Peter as well. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony. Here's our term. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud because you can't live in harmony with one another if you're arrogant. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. This is in the church. Do not be conceited. So live in harmony. To the quarreling believers in Corinth, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. He's not talking about agreement in, you know, earthly, worldly things. He's not saying in our case, uh, I like this color, you have to like the same color. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual things. Agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought in regard to the truths of the Word of God, in regard to living out those truths in daily life. 2 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Scott just read Philippians chapter 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. He says the same thing in different ways here, right? Like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and, in, and one in purpose. That's kind of the same thing, just stated in different ways. And then he speaks of Christ as the example. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who was a servant, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. As a church family, we're commanded to imitate Christ. And Christ was a humble servant. True unity will occur when we think like Christ. John 17, Jesus says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Skip down a couple of verses. I do not ask... For these only, he's speaking of his disciples. In what I'm asking you, Father, I'm not speaking of just the disciples, my followers right now in front of me. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is it he's talking about there? Who is it that uh, have believed in Christ because of the disciples' words? I'm looking at him. He's speaking of us. So my prayer, Father, I'm not just 
asking these things of the disciples. I'm asking these same things of those who will believe in me because of the ministry of the disciples. And that's us. We've got the word of God written by those men. It says in verse 21, here's part of the prayer, that they may all be one. Here's the unity part. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. According to Jesus, this unity, this oneness, is essential for God's people because it is a reflection of the oneness of the Father and the Son. So if you pull all these texts together, and there are others we could look at, we understand that this unity, while not being a uniformity of opinion regarding everything related to earthly life, This unity is a oneness of sentiment, disposition, aim, and purpose. He's speaking of here, and in these texts, a a oneness in regard to truth, in regard to the expression of truth in daily life, and in regard to the communication of truth to others. There's got to be, in this family, a oneness, a unity in our commitment to the truths of the Word of God and a, a unity, a oneness in regard to that truth bleeding out in everyday life, us being like the Christ who is expounded in the Scriptures. And there should be a oneness in our commitment to communicating the truths of the Scriptures to those around us, those who need Christ, other believers who need help and grace, Folks, sometimes church families, like human families, have times of tension. There'll be times of tension here. And by the way, if you leave every time there's a time of tension, you're going to last like six months in every church. There's a commitment to family. And so, like your biological family, you don't just, the first sign of tension, I'm out of here, I'm going to join that family. It doesn't work that way. And it shouldn't work that way in local church families. There'll be times of tension here, among us. There'll be times of misunderstanding, of of disagreement. There'll be times when you think I'm nuts and I think you're a little nuts. We're different people. We have different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. We're not always going to agree on everything, and sometimes there'll be tension. And sometimes there'll be situations where one member is genuinely wronged by another member, sinned against by another member. That's never going to happen. Oh, yes, it will. It'll happen in families, biological families. It'll happen in spiritual families, churches. But what, what, can, what should control us during those times? What should control you when you're offended? Or you've been actually sinned against? This kind of command right here. Unity of mind, oneness. Yeah, I don't think the way that person thinks, but we're united in the things of Christ. Yes, that person mistreated me, said something he or she should never have said, but we're family. She's my sister. He's my brother. I can forgive, and I will forgive. By the way, as important as unity is, I just want to say this, as important as unity is, unity is always based on truth. It's always secondary to truth. True unity is not possible apart from a shared commitment to truth. We never sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. Unity that disregards truth is a false unity. One one author said this, 
The foundation and bonding agent of the church's unity is the truth of God, not human winsomeness. In other words, our unity as a family is not based on I like you, you like me. doesn't matter what the Bible says. doesn't matter what we think the Bible says. We totally disagree about this doctrine and that doctrine, foundational doctrines. We disagree on those things, but we like each other. So that's all that really matters. We're unified. No, 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 no. True unity is not based on winsomeness. It's not based on I like you, you like me. It's always based in the church on truth. He goes on to say, a true unity founded on winsomeness, a unity founded on winsomeness, but divorced from a commitment to the infinitely precious truth of God is a full unity and a perversion of God's plan for the church. He's absolutely right. There is no unity if it's not theological unity. We might say we're family, we love each other, we're, we're one. But if we disagree regarding the Bible, the truths of Scripture, there's no real oneness there. Oneness is always founded upon truth. The second virtue. Sympathy and compassion. The word sympathy here basically speaks of a person who shares his feelings with others and then is able to weep or rejoice with that person based on the situation. It is the idea of weeping with someone, rejoicing with someone, whatever their situation, whatever's going on in their life, caring for them enough where we have that kind of a relationship, where there's confiding in one another and the sharing of feelings. And I, we're not all really good at this. I'm not really good at this. But this is the command. Sharing your life with others and there being this sympathy, this compassion that when there are struggles, we can weep with someone. When there's triumph, there we can rejoice with that person. This virtue is referenced in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. That idea is contained there. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12 is really clear. If you really want to understand what he's saying here regarding sympathy, here's the passage that's very clear. There should be no division in the body. He's talking about unity now. No division in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. The parts are us, people in the church. Okay, we're each a part. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's the idea. A sympathy depends on a willingness to forget yourself and identify with the pains, sorrows, and triumphs of others. Now, I don't think the point is that every one of us has to know each other intimately and be involved in their lives. I don't think that's the idea. Uh, a church of any size would be very difficult. But I think the idea really is there need to be, needs to be people in the church that you're involved with. I can think of four or five people in the church that I know well enough where they'll tell me if something's going on. They'll be honest. But, you know, you know that, that question, how's it going? What do we always answer? Fine. You need to learn the next question. It's the same question. How's it going? Fine. 
No, how's it really going? Now, it's hard to do that in the hallway. You know, a bunch of people around. People are unlikely to share how it's really going. Other people are walking past. You have to kind of be aside. How's it going? Fine. Now listen, I want to know how it's really going. Your job, your health, your wife, your child, whatever it is. How's it really going? Well, and with that well starts a conversation. You may not have that kind of connection with everyone here, but you need to have that connection with a number of people here. So that you can do that and share burdens. And so they can share burdens with you and share your burdens. So where are you when fellow believers are hurting? Are you in the lives of other believers enough to detect struggles? Are you connected with some people here so much that you can detect struggles? And by the way, sometimes you walk in the auditorium and you see someone who maybe you don't have a strong relationship with, but you can see on their face something's going on. So you sit down next to them. How's it going? Oh, you know, it's fine. How's it really going? And you're, maybe you're not close enough where, sh- where, where they will share. Maybe they'll just, it all just comes out. Are you in the lives of other believers enough to detect their struggles? Are you spiritually sensitive enough to detect their struggles? See, often we're just, con- we're just concerned about our own lives. I got this going on. I got that going on. I don't feel well today. And I'm just not concerned about you. That's often where we are. Are you committed to helping if you can? You can't always help. You can pray with someone. You can let them cry and cry with them. You can't always fix the problem. Some of us are fixers. We just want to fix everything. Sometimes things can't be fixed. But if you're there and you love them and you're showing that you love them, there's sympathy and compassion, that goes a long way. Third virtue, unflinching family love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. In secular Greek, this term, brotherly love, it's actually one term, is used of the love of siblings. In the New Testament, it's often used figuratively of, family, of the love of family, Christian family, church family, this one another thing. It's used of of us. And that's the idea here. Brotherly love should, must overflow here in this family. Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. He says it three times. It's really hard to miss. A new commandment I give you, love one another, as I've loved you, as I have loved you. That's the standard. As I have loved you, so must, so must you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, my followers, if you love one. It says it three times. The world will know that we're Christians, that we're part of this, because there's a love here that is maybe unusual. Regarding Peter's words, Curtis Vaughn says this. This Greek term suggests that Christians are to love each other because they are brothers, not just because they may find each other lovable. There's some people in this room you're not maybe going to find lovable. 
And maybe you're not always lovable. In fact, come up to me afterward, Blaine, and I'll tell you sometimes that you're not lovable. I mean, you know, let's pick on Blaine. We don't love based upon those kinds of things. This love, he goes on to say, they belong, uh, they belong to the same family and they have common spiritual parentage. That's the reason we love one another. We're, we're, we're the world all around us and all that's going on and the hatred for God and the hatred for the scriptures and the hatred for Jesus Christ and this is a family of people who love Christ who are trying to submit to the word of God, who are trying to encourage one another in that submission. And so we love one another because we're all born again into the Christian family. Regardless of whether we always see things eye to eye, regardless of whether we see each other as lovable or not. Now did you know that family love is a sign and characteristic of salvation? If you ever study 1 John, it's, it's impossible to miss. John says this, John, 1 John 3, 14. We know we've passed from death to life. We know we've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. We know we're Christians because we love our brothers. This is how you know. Anyway, he says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone in a church family like this one who doesn't care, who doesn't love, needs to question their relationship with Christ. That's the, that's the implication here. 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Meaning he doesn't love God. Now, I didn't write this. I'm a pretty black and white person. John's even more black and white. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, John's still writing, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So for John, and by that I simply mean John is the human author, for God, God's the ultimate author, loving one another is a test. It's a characteristic of all true believers, and therefore it's a test. Are you a true believer? How do they care about, what, who, how do they show love to other believers? They don't show any concern or care at all. That's a problem. So I ask you, how are you showing love to the people in this room? Let me remind you that Christian love, as it's spoken of and described in the scriptures, is never passive. It's always active. It's not just, I love you. It's, I am doing works that demonstrate I love you. Love, Christian love, is always active. It's involved. So I ask, how are you showing love to the people in this room? How are you caring for and investing in one another? The fourth virtue warmth and tenderness. A tender heart, he says. We are, we are all in danger of losing this virtue. Events in our world tend to blunt this virtue. Early last month, we heard via various media outlets 
that Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing 1,300, injuring 3,000, more than 3,000, taking 15, uh, 150 captive. We heard all this. We saw some pictures in front of us, some videos. And since then, we've learned how brutal and inhuman these terrorists are. By the way, that term is chosen, not inhumane. That's a weaker term, inhuman. What they did is inhuman. And we learned about it, maybe saw pictures, read articles, read descriptions, but there isn't much we can do about this in Marshall or in Kalamazoo. What can we do? Fix these atrocities. There's not much we can do, except maybe the next election, which we better do something then, if we can. My point is, when we learn of these kinds of atrocities, we normally just digest them a little and then go back to our normal lives. Our jobs, mowing the lawn, raking the leaves, balancing the checkbook, whatever we're doing, we just go back to normal life. Because there isn't much we can do. And the result, I think, is that often we become calloused, emotionally calloused, toward the tragedies in the lives of others. We become hard-hearted. We lose warmth and tenderness, which is what is commanded here. We can't allow that to happen. The, the, the command here is that we be full, actually the term, be full of pity. Be full of tenderness toward one another in the church family. Don't let this tenderness be blunted in some ways. Rather, allow yourself to remain tender. It speaks of an affectionate sensitivity toward one another. A warmth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Peter says this very same thing, same term. Be kind to one another, there's your one another, in the church family, tender-hearted, warm, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A similar term is used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and throughout the Gospels. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, there's our term, had compassion, had tenderness and warmth toward them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here are people who are harassed and helpless, and Christ has a, a, a warm, tender feeling toward them. And out of that, he cares for them. The last virtue. Humility. Now you might ask, what's the relationship humility to these other, of these other virtues. I think humility is the foundation of the other four. Being of one mind, being sympathetic and compassionate, loving one another as family, being warm and tender toward one another, I think each of these virtues is founded upon humility, upon an understanding though we are nothing outside of the grace of God. There needs to be a humility here. We are nothing outside of the grace of God. And from that humility will flow the other four virtues. Those times when we don't want to manifest these virtues are those times when we want to serve ourselves, when we think more highly of ourselves than we do others. I don't want to show tenderness to you. i got other stuff to do. I don't want to show brotherly love to you. I got other stuff to do. 
I'm not worried about oneness. I'm worried about me. We will develop Christian humility when we're impacted by two truths. Just think in terms of these now. These two, two things. We need to be impacted by these two things. First, we need to be impacted by the fact that we are weak, frail, and created beings. We, we are utterly dependent on our Creator. We can do nothing apart from Him. What do you have that God hasn't given you? So we're often proud, proud, uh, uh, thinking we're better than that person because I've got this or that. Or I've done this or that. The bottom line is, everything we are, everything we can do, everything we possess, it's all from God. It's all because of the grace of God. Pride really makes no sense. For us, pride makes no sense. It makes no sense when we remember that every breath we take and every beating of our heart is a gift of God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, What do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. Everything you have, you've been given by God. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, again, this is Paul's way of saying, pride makes no sense. Why do you boast in your, your good looks, your athletic ability, your ability to make chocolate chip cookies better than everyone else? Why do you boast in things when anything that, when everything you have is a gift of God? Why do you boast? There's nothing in which to boast. So first we need to be impacted by the fact that we are weak, frail, dependent created beings. And we're not better than anyone else. If you have a job that maybe is better than someone else's, who gave you the job? Who gave you the ability to function in that job in the right way, in a way that you could get it and keep it? If you have a nicer car than that person, who gave you the ability to make the money to buy the car, to have the car? Whatever it is. We're not, none of us are better than anyone, any of the, of the others of us. Secondly, we need to be impacted by the fact that our standard is not other, is not other people, but Christ. See, we, 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 are, we become proud when the standard becomes other people. And, you know, I, we can all pick people who are, aren't as smart, aren't as uh, good-looking, uh, you know, aren't as athletic, aren't whatever it is. We can all find someone that is lesser in some way than we are. And then we're, we're proud. Who is the standard, though? None of us is the standard. Who is the standard? Who is the one we compare ourselves to? It's Christ. When we sinful, depraved creatures, as we are, compare ourselves to Christ, humility is the only logical attitude. The next time that pride rears its ugly head, make yourself, make yourself, make yourself remember how lazy and arrogant and rebellious and envious and covetous and lustful you are. Honestly assess yourself. Compare yourself to Christ. And then humility is gone. I mean, I'm sorry. That was... Pride is gone. And humility will be developed, to be developed. So I was very proud of this sermon until that last sentence. Totally blew it. 
Nothing cures pride better than an honest evaluation of ourselves and a comparison of ourselves to Christ. So, as we look around the room, we need to remember that ultimately we have generated nothing good in our lives, that God has done it all, and that we are no, no better than anyone else here. As we consider Christ, we need to remember the depth and breadth of our sin and again realize that we're no better than anyone here. That honest evaluation of our dependence and our depravity will produce humility. And that humility, folks, will help us to be of one mind. It'll help us to be sympathetic. It'll help us to love one another. It'll help us to show warmth and tenderness to one another. If you're arrogant, you're not going to be able to obey any of these commands. Peter's plea for these virtues here in this verse is more than a plea. It's an announcement, really, that no Christian can live a God-honoring life unless in his personal relationships in the church he exhibits these virtues. I'm going to say that again. This is more than a plea. This is an announcement that no Christian can live a God-honoring life unless in his personal relationships in the church he exhibits these virtues. Our church cannot be truly Christian. Our church cannot be truly God-honoring if this list does not describe us. So the theme of this text is simply that a flourishing, God-honoring church is characterized by certain essential virtues. Here they are. Therefore, our church will only flourish if we possess these virtues. Now, we can grow numerically. We can expand our nursery. We can bust out walls so we have room for more chairs. We can save money for a larger auditorium. All these things are great. But if we don't possess and manifest the virtues described here in our relationships to the people in this room, we are not flourishing spiritually. And we're not honoring God. All these great things are great. But if we don't possess and manifest these virtues to those of us in this room, God really isn't pleased. We're so thankful, Lord, for this verse. It's a short little verse with just a list. But it is a list that we need to take to heart. Each one of us needs to examine our lives and our relationships with one another in our family, our church family, and ask ourselves if we are obeying, if these virtues describe us. We're thankful, Lord, for the way you've been blessing. We're thankful for the numeric growth we've seen. We're grateful for the way the projects are taking place around the building, allowing us a little more space. We're grateful for how you have provided financially for all these things. 
But these aren't really signs of a healthy church. The virtues we've just seen, these are the signs of a healthy church. Father, in our individual parts in this family, help us to be virtuous. Help us to possess and manifest the traits we've just seen in verse 8. Thank you for Christ. We love him. We want him to be pleased, lifted up, glorified. We ask these things in his name.